Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Nora, a student activist from Myanmar. At the age of 15, Nora left her home in Myanmar to study in Japan at one of the United World Colleges. Raised by a strong woman, she learned early on about the injustices in history of her country and was determined to one day make a difference. Nora was on her college campus in the US when the devastating news of the coup reached her in February 2021. She immediately sprung to action and with fellow Burmese students set up a panel discussion to generate awareness on her campus and within her local community. Motivated by the impact this had, she decided to increase her advocacy. She joined Sisters to Sisters, an organization which aims to raise awareness about the violence used on women by the Myanmar military, while also promoting global solidarity among women fighting systematic oppression across the world. Here Nora shares the difficulties of being away from family, how she finds the strength to keep advocating for Myanmar, while also highlighting some of the fantastic initiatives from Sisters to Sisters. Let's start the conversation. Hello there. Good morning. Hi. Can you hear me properly? Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Good. Thank you. How's everyone? Good. Lovely to meet you. You're in the US, yeah? Yes, I am in the US. I'm currently in Iowa. Oh, is it really cold there right now? Yeah. It's really cold. <laughs> Have you got a lot of snow? Not yet. Um, usually it's like around maybe late November, December that it starts snowing, so so far so yeah so we'll just maybe uh Nora if you could just give a little bit of background to who you are and your life just kind of your connection to me and Mar growing up but just a little bit so people can get a sense of who you are my name is Nora Nguyen and I am a person of mixed ethnic background because my whole maternal side is I'm half Bama ethnic group and half Chinese and my whole ethnic side from the paternal side is um current people so they have a lot of different practices in each part of the household I grew up being sort of feeling like neither and yet also seeing how I can embrace that multiplicity and uh, um by the time I was 15 years old and I have left home to study in Japan at one of the United World Colleges if you don't know what that is it is 18 institutions around the world and Japan was one of those institutions they were created after the world war to unite people like youth under one roof so that we can use education as a force for peace and a sustainable future so these are the values that I grew up with It was really hard being far away from home since I was 15 years old but um my friends and the teachers there who lived with me on the campus became my second family and it was really the interesting time when I got to look at my country's issues since then from an international perspective being away from home and looking back into it and returning during the breaks and finding out hey like my thoughts have changed in this way I've um, missed this much about my culture and oh I wish these parts of my culture were different and better in terms of patriarchy or the oppression and like dictatorship that I've seen throughout 
growing up in Myanmar. So things like that. And that has really mean a lot to me just to see that. And um, as for my parents' jobs and occupations, my dad is a seafarer. Um, some people don't know what it is these days anymore. He's like um, working on those merchandise ships that um, ships things across the world. And so I have grown up with my mom, who was a housewife for a bit and then worked at the school I went to as an event coordinator. And having those type of parents, what it meant a lot to me was that I saw my mom fulfill the strengths and responsibilities of both what a male should do in the house and what a female should do. So for me, like I got to see a lot of that, like, oh, like, you know, gender issues since I was young. That's fascinating to actually get a complete picture. It's such an interesting life you've had, but so common as well for people as young as 15 to go and study. Even like we were just talking to a friend of ours recently and she left at 15 from the villages to go to Mandalay to study. And just you guys, like when I try and tell people, how brilliant young people are in Myanmar like you start all these things like this independence and this much earlier than we do in the West so that's yeah that's really great and um, I think it would be interesting just to tell us a little bit about how when the coup happened obviously being away and the impact it had on you and your immediate family just if you wanted to share a bit of that of course so a lot of my family members are in Myanmar and uh, they were, you know, facing it every day in their lives. It was a day at my college, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure what day of the week it was, but I was just sitting doing my homework. And all of a sudden, I hear these crushing news that, you know, a coup has happened in Myanmar. It is February 1st. For us, it was um, January, right? Still, <laughs> because in Myanmar is a day ahead. And I had three fellow Myanmar students at my college at the time. They were all very distraught as well. That's how we were immediately getting together. And we're like, hey, listen, this has happened. What have you heard from your family members? You know, it was just a huge shock to us. And uh, we know that something that might happen with the resounding, you know, success of NLD winning that election. But we didn't know that that type of treatment will be followed right after. So we were horrified. I was absolutely sobbing for my family's safety. My father was out in the sea um, near China's China's ports during that time. He couldn't come back home either because all of this was happening like so suddenly. And uh, um, my mom was alone with her family. Right. So imagine my mom being like away from her daughter. I'm an only daughter too, being away from her daughter and her husband who are both abroad and her like having to see and go through that alone. I was so worried about everything. And because of that, the three other Myanmar people and me, we all united. And then we said, we need to raise awareness about this on our college campus. We believe that this is a huge abomination to human rights and that this should be addressed, not in just a school setting, but in daily life where we can just, you know, talk about these issues, talk about consequences, what it means for each of us and, you know, internationally and nationally. So we did a panel and uh, we are all from different parts of Myanmar. Some of them are of Shan ethnic group. Some of them are Karen. Some of them are Rakhine. And myself, I am a mixed, right? As I said earlier, I am of mixed ethnicity of Karen and Bama. So we shared these like experiences as well. And then what the coup meant to each of us and what we're so worried and scared about and what we can do to, you know, help as much as we can. So 
that start of the panel really, really brought in different people, not only our, you know, our campus people, but people from the town that I'm living in right now also like tuned in to the panel and they came in, they asked questions and it just felt so very supportive. And I said, listen, we got to keep doing this. So I started writing petitions. I started, you know, reaching out to different people, joining different groups on Facebook that are very strongly advocating for the elimination of this military junta. So with that, I came across a person from Sisters to Sisters. I'm not sure if I should say her name, but I'll keep her identity and I'll say she was amazing. She was already starting these petition um, letters and posting them in those different Facebook groups. And I commented on one of them because she was asking if there's anyone experienced with, um, you know, gender issues and so forth. Well, I am currently an undergrad majoring in international studies for peace and dialogue and women and gender studies. And I have had a lot of experiences with proposal writing and petition writing because of earlier, as I said. So I jumped in and I said, listen, I want to really help my country in whatever way I can, sis. I'm happy to help you with this petition and whatever it is, whether um, editing or giving ideas and so forth. And that was like mid-April. And this was because we discovered that a lot of the women at human rights advocates and protesters are being arrested, detained, and in very horrible conditions. So that was what the um, petition letter was about. And uh, as I did it, and uh, since we've gotten in contact by, I think it's like early May, the sister reached out again and said, hey, listen, would you like to be part of Sisters to Sisters? We're going to be raising a lot of awareness. We're going to be doing the same things that we did, but with not just like people on the grounds in Myanmar, but with global activists to, to, you know, help as much as we can. And it's going to be a volunteer um, experience. And I said, I would love to. I would love to do whatever I can to help out my country from where I, wherever I am. So I accepted that position and I got to meet so many strong women in the team that I am so proud to call my friends and my like co-workers of this movement. Right? So it's just how I've gotten into the group. And I would say the reason that I'm so in tune with all of these is it's not just when the revolution started, it's not just when the coup happened that I was interested in politics. I have been interested in it my whole life. My mom was a history major back in back bachelor's degree. So I learned a lot about Myanmar's history and the injustice. And my uncle is actually a Karen of Karen ethnic group. And he is a refugee in Japan more than 20 years ago. Me going to Japan to study was the first time I got to meet him and learn about all these things that they're doing to fight the military junta even then. So seeing that, seeing the migrant group in Japan and getting to know them, their stories and how they're accommodating to a different country with such hardships and their backgrounds, that just made me want to really advocate for, you know, whoever has been impacted by the injustice of the military since I was young. So that's why when the opportunity strikes, I want to always represent Myanmar, represent what we are trying trying to do what we are trying to break out of after all these decades to get the justice that we deserve. So yeah, that's my story. So 
In terms of sisters to sisters, like there's been so many great initiatives, but I guess the one that's freshest in my mind at the moment is the letters to the Rohingya sisters. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it's a beautiful initiative. Uh, yeah, of course. So Letters to Rohingya Sisters, we were working closely with organizations like HR and uh, we had this like giant campaign with Asia Justice and Rights, which is in turn, I just realized. And uh, we, for the fourth anniversary of the Rohingya genocide, we worked with IHR, which is the Asia Justice and Rights. Yes, that organization. And uh, we tried to do these um, letters that talked about how we felt as sisters, you know, two sisters, just like our organization names. Um, we understand that the violence that happened was an intersectionality of things, not just gender issues, but ethnic issues and, um, you know, like migrant issues and how they had to, you know, not even feel safe in the place that they were born and how we actually want to show their, our solidarity to them and that we care about them. So with that type of letters and words from not just our sisters, but it's like a huge campaign. We sent those letters, collected them, and then put it to the Rohingya sisters with HR. So that's how that worked. <laughs> yeah. And also met with those people who are leaders in the Russian communities there. And then we got to hear about their side about some workshops that they've been doing to, you know, help with um, becoming leaders, being resilient during harsh times and so forth. So it was really heartwarming to see that, you know, people are trying their best to unite during these times and also take accountability of their own actions when people remember how Myanmar was very against acknowledging the Rohingya genocide back then. So taking accountability of that as well while showing and extending our support. That's what the main idea was as well. Like the other initiative that I just know because you were posting it the last couple of days is that Fight Like a Garment Worker, that you're helping to spread that message. So again, another brilliant initiative. And we actually spoke to two people behind that as well. And that episode will come out soon. But I'm just thinking in terms of is the purpose of what you're trying to do is is to highlight these things that have been ongoing that need to be brought up into the conversation at this point? Because if you're going to move into a kind of federal democracy that we need to do better next time, is that is that what's at the heart of what you're, you're doing? Um, one of the things that our sister says that's really inspiring is you cannot talk about labor rights without talking about women's rights. Again, issues are like integrated to each other. It's linked. All of them are linked. And so when we're trying to showcase the voices of the garment workers, we're trying to show the impunity. We're trying to show the injustice. We're trying to show the exploitation of what happens to women, like what happens to them, even though they were in the forefront of this revolution. Their voices were not heard. Um, they're not as seen. So um, we really want to highlight those things. And not only that, it is during COVID time. I am wondering if you know about the CDM movements, but um, civil disobedience movements have really impacted Myanmar as well. So not only are they dealing with all of this already existing impunity and hardships, they're also going through a hard time with COVID and they're also going through a hard time after the civil disobedience movement. So 
all of these are combining together to give people a hard time to deal with the situations, right? So we really want our best to showcase their voices and also get the help that they need to continue small businesses or things like that. So that's what we really want to do. We take on different projects. So we are aware of these things and helping with like the spread of it. But the person who is in charge of it for that particular project varies across our um, sisters and sisters board. Because of that, like, I hope I did justice in explaining what they are trying to do. But that's only, I would say, the surface, right? Because the people on the grounds who are dealing with these garment workers are the actual ones hearing their living stories and translating it into the comics that we are trying to show the world. So that's what I want to say. I hope I did justice for all the hard work that they been doing but um yeah so and I imagine like for a lot of the people behind sisters to sisters they are needing to keep their identity secret for their own safety whereas I guess you being outside the country is a little bit even though there's still risks attached I guess it's a little safer for you to speak out than than, than the others I definitely agree. I was going to just talk about our structure as well, because we are in North America. Some of us are in Europe. Some of us are actually still in Myanmar. Like everybody's different experiences vary, right? And we're trying our best to come through different time zones and work together. But one of the things that we always worry about is for our sisters who are still in Myanmar and who are maybe near the borders and who are experiencing raids and threats of raids by the military every day. So those are scary things that we have to, you know, go through. And then I would check in and say, like, sister, are you still safe? Are you okay? How are you? Sometimes I even... Like, honestly speaking, I even worry that what if we've done this project, but um, suddenly one of our sisters are endangered. That type of feeling keeps me feel horrified every day. And I'm very, very worried and anxious of what might happen to them. So it's, I would say it's a curse and a blessing to be far away from home right now. The blessing being that I can do what I can to help from where I am. But the curse is that I cannot be there to protect my family or to be there for my sisters physically for sisters to sisters, right? So yeah, sometimes uh, a lot of hardships happen with talking to people on the ground as well, right? Whether it is like making sure that their identity is protected or we can, you know, actually do things in a very like fast manner because we're sort of far away and all spread out globally. So those are some of the, I, I guess, hardships that we have to address and work through together. Yeah. How is your mom? You said you were worried about her when the coup happened. You must have spoken to her quite a bit since then. How is she doing? She is doing really good. So finally, after the port opened up again in Myanmar, my father was able to come home and, you know, had to quarantine because of COVID and everything. So now at least she has my father close by her and you know going through these hardships together but at the same time that means that my father is sort of unemployed at the moment right because he cannot go outside of the country to work as a seafarer while 
this is happening. There are a lot of barriers to it. And so I'm just worried about their livelihood as well. And everyday life from going from, you know, one township in Yangon, where I live to another township, just visiting our grandparents' house is an anxiety filled thing for me, because I wonder what if something happened on the street to them? What if they run across the military while they're on the road? It's just all these issues. And uh, it's really horrifying that my grandparents also live near like downtown area where a lot of like protests and things happen. Whereas um, my mom and dad are a little bit more on the north side of Yangon. So a lot of issues like that. And uh, I would say that I am very lucky because some of my other Myanmar friends at my college that I said, they are not getting in touch with their family members because there's no internet and that type of words because the more rural it is, the harder it is to get in touch with your family member. So it's just really hard to deal with for somebody young like us to, you know, have to go through. And I also get very scared whenever there's like a notice that says, you know, internet is shutting down across the country say your goodbyes or like say whatever you need to say to your parents and it's just because the time zone is so different every time I go to sleep I'm worried that the moment I wake up I will not be able to have access to my family members whether it is my parents or other close relatives so those are the type of things that I have to live through every day and then to study, go to school, do my part-time jobs, and uh, to help out as SDS. Sometimes it gets really overwhelming, but um, I just have to keep going because I just have to. I have to ensure that my country gets the justice that it deserves. And sometimes it's really, um, it, the future seems bleak. The future seems like, like I have no more future anymore, that I've been robbed of my dreams is what I feel like. My dreams to give my family a good life. My dreams to stand up for my country. My dream to make Myanmar one of the countries that are deemed a good country and not just in the ASEAN region, but in front of the world. But all of that is such, it seems dark and bleak because of what is happening right now and it's it's really hard to put it into words. sometimes I get very you know just hopeless but then seeing everyone on the ground fighting so hard and so strong just keeps me thinking if they can do that while they are in those harsh conditions I must do what I can from where I am as well and yeah so I hope that the stories we share, the stories we hear about people back home and uh, all the things that is happening can be heard by the world and can be heard by people who, who can do change, like the United Nations. I feel like they are doing what they can, but they can hear and they can do much more of how to eliminate these issues that are happening and ongoing. But we are thankful too, though, because as sisters to sisters, I have went on behalf of our organization to conferences with United Nations Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women or the situation that's happening in Myanmar. And they are taking that, all that information and trying to do something. But I just hope 
that things can be not just on paper, but actually implemented to help our people on the grounds who are actually living through this nightmare is what I really hope and wish for. Yeah, and I think you're right in terms of it's so important to keep telling these stories because they become people far removed from us that we can't relate to and that we just kind of ignore. So the power in what you guys are doing is keeping these stories alive and, and not forgetting these people because it could be so easy for us to forget them. But I'm just wondering... How do you find that balance in your life? Because I can only imagine when you say like a part-time job, studying, volunteering your time, trying to even like worry about your family back home and thinking about them, like, are you finding ways to balance it and live a little bit too? Or is this all consuming or, you know, do you step back some days or are you trying to make it more like a timetable structured help? Or I'm just, you know, I know there's some people like you and I just feel like they're all just going to hit a wall and just drop. (laughs) It's just like, how do you prevent that? You know. Right. So I guess this also helps that I do uh, two part-time jobs at my college campus. One is at the Career Center and one is at Counseling Services. So I'm a huge advocate of mental health and myself going through these hard issues and wanting to help other people going through this horrible, um, you know, reality of the coup. I just find it helpful to always remind myself that community care comes from self-care. If you don't keep being resilient, if you don't take care of your needs, you you cannot effectively take care of other people's needs. And so um, it's very hard to balance, of course, but I've really gotten really good with my organizational skills. And I've been every day in my life is checking the Google calendar, ticking off tasks. And um, that's the only way I can keep living is what I tell myself. And uh, I sometimes feel overworked. But at the end of the day, I feel like if I have too much time on my hands, I would completely break down. I wouldn't, I would have too much thoughts in my head and feeling helpless. But if I keep being productive, if I'm doing as much as I can to, you know, make my time well worth, then I feel like I can keep going. And that is my strength. And that's why hearing my mom's voice sometimes can even be just the thing that I need to regain that hope that I have. And um, that hope that one day I can meet both my parents again and, uh, you know, repay them with gratitude for all the things that they've done for me growing up. That keeps me going on. Oh, <laughs> I'm getting really emotional, but um, you're an amazing speaker, Dara. Absolutely an amazing speaker. And I, I can't imagine the enormity of everything you're having to deal with. And as perhaps always with human nature, you, in order to empathise, you kind of try and relate. And I think about the time when the internet went off and Suzanne was still in the country and my Myanmar friends were in the country and the anxiety I felt. And that, they weren't my family. I love them, but they weren't my direct family. And to be the other side of the world when something like this is going on, it's it's a different kind of hardship to deal with than to actually live through it because you've just got the anxiety of the silence and the what ifs. So you you are being amazingly productive you are achieving amazing things you're holding down your education and you're working like absolutely hats off Tina like you're doing amazing things and I also in terms of the frustration when you said earlier like I wanted the world to see what an amazing place Myanmar is like me and Suzanne have lived there 
we know how amazing that country is. We know how amazing the people are and um, the frustrations. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to cry as well. Sorry. I definitely agree. Huh. Yeah. So, like, when you say, yeah, I want it. Oh, it's getting hard for me. Let me get a breath. Going away from Myanmar since I'm 15 to a different country, it's like I automatically become the representative of Myanmar, right? What Myanmar values are. Because chances are they might not ever see a different person from Myanmar. And I am the one that they will base, oh, these are the values of Myanmar. This is what Myanmar is about. Oh, this is the pride of Myanmar. And, you know, having to say like, yeah, our country is a horrible country with a horrible set of leaders that are dictatorial and just horrible with human rights. But we have beautiful people. We have such a beautiful culture, but we have such a beautiful history. And then it's just like, why just, I want to erase the horrific part of our country so that we can see the beauty for what it is and to not be able to um, show that and also to have to always come up with like excuses and explain better. It just takes a toll on you. I remember when I was in Japan, the Mohenja genocide was happening and I have my fellow Muslim uh, roommate who talked to me and said, like, why are you killing Muslims? And that type of thing just punches you in the heart because you say, no, like, it's the military who's doing those things. We as people, we're not against our Rohingyas living near a kind state. Like, and then they're just, like, sort of saying, like, explain why, like, do U.S. and Myanmar support those killings? And those kind of things really make you feel like, wow, like our country is seen as such a horrible thing. And so it makes you frustrated. It's just so hard to explain to other people about how like I do not hold these values. Um, we do not mean to do that. And yeah, just a lot of answers you always expected to give answers I feel like that sometimes you may not have because you cannot justify any of those horrific things that the military has done and that type of feeling just weighs upon you I would say throughout all these years I think even for us like one of the things behind even doing this podcast is like we always felt like people could see Myanmar through our eyes the way we saw and experienced it that these people are incredible and as you say they are not the military and they are not the actions of the military like our experience was people were just so kind and so generous and it's the only country I've been to where I have left several times my phone in a taxi and the taxi driver has driven all the way back to my house to return that to me and that's happened all of us, like all of my friends have stories like that from our time in Myanmar where they've left a laptop or even an umbrella and they've come back to my workplace and refused to take any money from me as a thank you. You know, just with lovely little stories and just our neighbors and, you know, the people we would buy fruit from in the morning and the driver who would, you know, wait outside our apartment to, to bring us somewhere like these guys, like, you know, they were just all so kind and they always want to look after you. You know, that was our experience. And, you know, I feel like, the outside world don't get that because not many people get to visit Myanmar or experience it, you know, in the same way. So 
I just felt like if people could see you guys and hear you guys, that they would care, you know, and that's the whole point, like that you are, you are people just like everybody else. And whatever history you have, all countries have a pretty horrific history when you look at them, you know, and you can't like, you know, tar the whole country with the same brush. I mean, it's not, it's not fair or right to do, uh, which is why these beautiful initiatives like Sisters to Sisters need to be highlighted more. Like we're just looking this week, like Rap Against Junta brought out this amazing album. And you're talking, these guys are in Myanmar right now. In the past few months, they've managed to produce like a phenomenal rap album, amazing artwork, do a massive launch on YouTube. And you're like, guys, this should be front page news in terms of peaceful resistance and phenomenal creativity and coming together of people. And these are the things we should be highlighting. And it's just not enough of that happening. You know, people want to focus on, you know, clickbait and the same old stuff, you know. So it's just trying to let people know what you guys are all doing in your own way to to help your country, which is amazing and so important, so important, you know. And like, as you said, right, all these different ways of, you know, fighting against injustice is also so appealing to younger people too it's not just like oh like we should write petitions oh we should go to these um rallies and so of course those are definitely the forefront important but also there are other ways right art like the comics that we've done for fight like a garment worker and there's music and there's those other things that can bring people together too so i really hope that that can be the way that you know we spread the information as well like for example the other Myanmar students here at my college they're also very excited about that rap album they talk about it almost every day and uh, yeah it's just i'm part of generation z so as a Gen Z, um, seeing that we can, you know, just unite with different ages, like not just my mother's age, who experienced the 1988 revolution uprising as well. So to um, unite with those generations, us and everyone and bring them all together and say, hey, listen, we're fighting for the same end result. And we're on this together. That also means so much to me that we can be creative with the way that we are trying to like strive for peace. And so I hope that people can jump in wherever they can to raise awareness and take their part in this revolution, I would say. Yeah, and I think someone that we spoke to recently and something similar, he said like, you know, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you keep the spirit of the revolution with you, you know, and however small your contribution And as long as you're not doing anything to help the military or to help the country run efficiently, you're helping, you know, so just make sure of those things. And every small act can mean a lot. But also we have the other side of that, where the military for years have kind of learned how to divide people and how to grip the people with fear and paranoia and distrust. And we're seeing that again now. And it's just how people kind of not fall into that that's something we worry about a lot you know and I have friends who are different ethnic groups and they say like oh straight away they don't trust us because we're a different ethnic group and you know that kind of paranoia you know yeah that's why I was talking a lot about the different ethnic groups that my friends who are in my college holds because we have come together we have spread our different life experiences and then united to fight for the same thing Different generations are coming together and there's also a lot of different forms of peace that people are trying to go for, you know, whether it is through music or art or different things. 
But oh, if I could share another initiative from the Sisters to Sisters campaign that I really, really enjoyed partaking in, it was for. I think it was June 19th, which is the International Day for the Elimination of uh, Sexual Violence Against Women. A lot of people joined in this campaign, and like it, globally too, like every person who was trying to fight for their rights, I sent them the campaigns that they could do. Please, like join this, and they said, oh, of course. And I was really particularly happy with how it was very gender inclusive as well. We didn't care what gender you were; just put on the red lipstick and say, "This is going to speak the words of truth." I was participating in it, and all my friends were participating in it. And to see so many people advocating for it, it was just so ah, oh, it's it's humbling, and it's also very inspiring. I feel like I looked up the numbers of how impactful it was too earlier, and it was around like sixteen thousand people or more that engaged in this campaign across social media platforms. And it was not just our efforts, right? We talked with activists from Belarus and Colombia as well. So a lot of this type of, you know, standing in solidarity and fighting against oppression—that type of thing—is what I really want to dedicate my life to. I feel like so, yeah. A lot of different different initiatives. I would say like letters to Rinda sisters, fight like a government worker. This red lips speak truth to power campaign, and there's many more that are coming. And so I hope you keep in touch with us. Oh, and- definitely. We're excited to see, uh, and it's amazing. It's and as you say, it's very inclusive. Even though it's sisters to sisters, like I saw so many brothers <laughs> wearing red lipstick. I'm joining in, and it is so inclusive. And it's it's great how many males are getting behind their females and their sisters this time around. And we've seen so huge shifts in Myanmar since since the coup in that area, which is incredibly important. And one of the I guess, positives coming out of such a horrible time. We're seeing some glimmers of hope in some of these things. I agree. I totally agree. I personally see such like a wave of feminism coming out from this coup as a result. It's like you seek justice from the military while fighting the patriarchy at the same time. It's just a lot of that and it's very empowering i feel like and a lot of issues of lgbtq plus discrimination also existed in myanmar till now but with those type of campaigns i hope that people are more open to the idea of different identities as well and yeah so again the intersectionality of things that's what we're absolutely trying to push for and hope that people take it up with an open heart and an open mind i really really hope that that's the case um yeah a lot of mental health things happened too the same person who reached out to me maybe you can blur her name later was the one who you know got me into S2S in the first place and she's a huge mental health advocate so she has done a lot to as resilience Myanmar to you know, bring awareness of how can you stay resilient during these times? How can you stay strong? And a lot of mental health workshops. And for example, we had to explain what rape culture is to Myanmar. We might not even have it properly in our dictionary. We might not have this terminology. We have to share these and say, listen, they've been doing that to our you know, women in the rural areas. And these are survivors and they need our help. And so coming up even with like a list of definitions and terminology to deal with all this 
issues are also very helpful. And so, yeah, a lot of that is also going to happen in the future as well, um, mental health workshops and things like that to empower others. So I, I feel like whatever I say right now cannot even do justice to what Sisters to Sisters is doing as a whole and all the different projects that our members are taking on. I mean, some just go to like Washington, D.C. to uh, rallies and then say, here we have all the stationery that you may need to write a letter to our sisters in prison right now or to our Rohingya sisters. Like, please write a letter and say whatever you want to say to encourage them. And like, that's how these things are being done, like with a lot of like care and advocacy. And so um, I really, really appreciate my sisters in our organization who have been doing that every day. Every week is just insane, the amount of effort they put in. On the feminist mindset, I I distinctly remember a point when there were bras hung up. Not just the bras, the longies too, the um, main that women wear. And it's because the military, they have this superstition, right, that their power home will be, um, you know, it will decrease if they go under it. So I was really like, wow. To hear that when the start of the coup was happening, it was like, that's really creative. And people are coming up with so many different ways to show their feminism, too. It's really, really inspiring. And I think it was a powerful way to show that these old traditions and superstitions are outdated and, you know, we shouldn't be living our lives by them. And I think that that was a real moment of like soldiers, you know, are afraid to walk under, you know, these things. It was a good moment to say like, you know, question things and, and not just traditions are important but some of them you know need updating you know oh definitely definitely and i loved a lot of the beating the drums at a specific time too like 8 p.m that was like you know to scare off the demons and mm-hmm. the devils <laughs> and that was really oh, cool too. my my family participated in it every day <laughs> We did as well. I was still there when I will never forget the first time I heard that because we lived on like the 11th, 12th floor of a high rise oh. building and just the whole, like we were not far off lay down and just noise. It was incredible. And we would be out banging at our pots as well. But it was uh, such a, I couldn't describe it. It was emotional, like just that, that noise all at once. And people would flash their lights and it was just, yeah, it was very powerful. Very, very powerful. I'm really happy that my family is very much very into the revolution as well. They're doing everything that they can. Oh, my aunt used to be part of, not used to be, I think she still is, right, of NLD and uh, in our, how do you call it, county. Like she's just spreading NLD issues and uh, things like that, representing for the uh, community in her township and things like that. And then my uncle, even though he became a refugee in Japan, he was still fighting for the rights of Korean people. So it never ends. It just, people were like, did it just happen now? Did it only happen now? I'm like, it never stopped. And the, the fighting for justice never ended. There was, we cannot even then. I remember the last time it begun because it's always been there as people have been fighting all this time so yeah that's what I tell my people too because they're like oh are people only jumping on to fight for justice because of the coup 
And some people have been to, I mean, for some people, it is their first time, but it's the first time it's directly maybe affected them or that they've been at the age where they can actually have an impact. You know, a lot of people were very young before and they didn't know when you're a kid, like you, you don't know what's going on. So, yeah, there's definitely it's new for some people. But as you say, there's people who have been doing this for 20 years, like longer, you know, 70 years in, in, in some ethnic states. They've been, you know, fighting back. But it's just so sad, you know, in many ways. Yeah, if I'm completely honest, my family wasn't really happy when I was getting too much into these, you know, efforts, because they say like, what if you get in trouble? It's always like, um, again, I would say this is sort of a issue that points towards gender inequality. Why would you do politics? When you're a woman, you need to be safe and take care of your safety and all of that things. And I would say like, that's like, I'm trying my best to do what I can. And I will do it even if it's at the expense of my protection and safety. So those kind of things, I had to have talks with my older family members as well, even though my mom was very supportive. I mean, she is a feminist. I would say she's been teaching me feminist values throughout my whole life. So yeah, had to fight with some family members for doing these things as well. And yeah, they, they tell me a lot about the 1988 uprising where they were not allowed to go to the protest because my grandparents would not let them go and all these restrictions and the differences now. And it, it has been very impactful to hear those stories as well. And do you feel, Nora, hopeful for the revolution to succeed? I mean, what is your feeling on it? Because I think when we got to about the six month mark, I felt like everyone was just like kind of giving up. And then I feel like the the defense of revolution D-Day announcement almost like gave everyone like this injection of hope for some strange reason it did. And now I feel like this month, October, I feel like things kind of hopeful. Again, I, I mean, I'm getting a lot of good energy from people in the country. There seems to be like this belief that the people will win, not today or tomorrow, but eventually. Would you hold that that thought yourself? I feel like my hope at this point is fluctuating, right? It's not certain every day because of my like we're human, you know. We we are just trying to live our lives and hearing those things like oh that excitement again and oh that you know horrific thing again. It's just really hard to see where you stand with hope. But now that the ASEAN has declined to acknowledge the military junta right fully and all these things like that, that is the instances I feel like okay, it's not just nationally but like internationally. Things are starting to change. Listen, we can do this and be kept on. And then that type of hope keeps me going. But sometimes I really, really worry about people on the ground. Like, what if things get less nonviolent, you know, and things are becoming and accumulating to more violence just because that's what happened during wartime. And that thought makes me feel so horrified. Just this morning, I don't know if I should share this and like, just this morning, my mom said some people on the streets have started to shoot the soldiers. Who are I saw a video. There's a video. Yeah, of it. yeah the drive-by shooting. It's like, what What do we do? You know, it's like, you cannot really say, like, don't do that either. Because it's, what is the point that violence from the civilian side becomes justified after you know what I mean it's like fighting fire with fire it's hard to put it into words right now but it's just I feel like you know what happens at that point where we also start to lose our humanity 
because of the violence that they've placed upon us, that we're turning into the same violent beings that they are. They placed this on us. And it's just so scary to think of that. And uh, like it's scary too to hear some people from back home who are like, yes, that is that's amazing. That's awesome, right? So I want to say, yeah, that's cool. That's cool that they're fighting back. But also what is going to happen as a result? You know, I, I don't have answers for that. It's just something I've been tackling and trying to make sense of as well. Like, should I feel happy that all of these things are happening? Or is it just going to create much more issues later on? And it just, I don't know. Actually, I don't know how to <laughs> phrase that properly. It's just really... It's so difficult because, you know, even we found ourselves like being more supportive of people fighting back in terms of like, otherwise it's like lie down and die. But then when you see those calculated cold killings, it's quite actually hard. You think you think you support that. And then you're like, actually, that's a human being still, you know, and it's it's very conflicting, actually. It's And I I agree because like somebody sent me a video earlier, like in a very like, oh, this is awesome way. And I'm like, I don't think that's the word I for this you know I but at the same time the soldiers defecting people are very supportive of that which shows that like there isn't a hatred on the other side if they move to the other side and you know pdfs are saying like look you know please do not travel on this road we don't want to injure you we don't want to kill you just or please don't cut off the electricity we don't want to hurt you but we will do it so like the military don't give you those kind of warnings you know you know, there is like a real sense of them trying to do things right. They're saying, look, step away, step out of our way. We don't want to harm you. And, you know, soldiers come to our side. We won't harm you. You know, stop killing our people and you don't need to fear us. So I get it. Still very hard to, to look at it. Very, very hard. You always say, Suzanne, there is a peaceful solution here in terms of sanctions internationally that could be placed to just cut off the Tamador so they could not continue in the way that they have been. So if we're going to point accountability here, I think if personally accountability goes to those massive corporations that continue to benefit from the fact that, you know, they've got financial interest in the country, not from the civilians who are fighting back. And and that it's not like they've not pleaded to the UN. It's not like they've not pleaded to like ASEAN. They've pleaded, they've given you the alternative. And it's almost, yeah, like I can completely empathize and understand, but it's horrible to watch. And like it was about the sanctions too, right? We've done so many petitions about that. We hope for it. And I just hope that it becomes a global effort instead of some like the, this country and that saying like, oh, you're right. We're doing this like sanction as a peaceful form of solidarity. Like we, we know we need it more. <laughs> we need it more effectively and uh, for unity in terms of doing those sanctions. So it's just a really hard thing to do it too. It's frustrating because money talks, it does. And, you know, used even just the impact of sanctions on the oil and gas industry that would have on Minang Lang and his reputation within his own people, like even just on that level, even if it's a symbolic move, it would have people questioning him. It would have people turning away from him, probably more defection. So, I mean, there's so many ways it would be beneficial. I just find it frustrating. Yeah, like preach nonviolence, but then support nonviolent efforts. That That's all you need to do. Back them up. I want to bring up this issue, too, that we've been talking about. Revenge porn has been happening a lot, too. The military has been spreading all these, like, 
you know, pictures and videos of the women and then through revenge porn trying to sort of invalidate their advocacy and activism they say like oh this is a type of person that is advocating against us do you trust this kind of person listen here what you're doing here is so you know invasive and such a horrible thing to do to people like and we've been trying to address that issues as well most of the time it is of course supporters of the Tamadol who are commenting on them spreading those clips and just doing all of those it's really really disgusting feeling so it's really bad and they like of course like say so many derogatory terms like you know i would say sluts whores um anybody who is something like fighting for justice they would call them all these sluts these whores these um it's just really disempowering in terms of like gender as well they're just using these terms to specifically target the women who are fighting for justice in this revolution and to undermine their activism it's like why like you know i think it's all they have they're not intelligent enough to intellectually challenge them powerful strong females who threaten them so it's the only way they can find to disempower them i am like in awe of a lot of female activists yourself included in this that are just so good at what they do so if the only way that they can feel like they can you know get back on them is Mm -hmm. to dehumanize them in terms of this kind of sexual slander then it is a mark of how powerful and how important they are and how threatening they are by that and it's just an age-old horrific tactic toxic masculinity i guess right right just undermining all of us but that's another issue that we've been having a hard time trying to you know break awareness and address and everything too so yeah one of the things when we spoke to uh tet recently and she was saying that for those in the country like her, when they see initiatives like your initiative or protests or people going to Washington, D.C. And like that's a, as she called it a vitamin boost for people in the country. Like that gives them such a lift to see that. And, and I, I just always think of that when I, why we wanted to do this podcast. We wanted to get that information inside the country, too, so that they can hear what you guys are doing, because it, it just it makes them feel okay we're not alone there's people out there with us they are fighting with us like you know they care people because they might not get that news you know regularly or often so it does mean a lot and it doesn't go unnoticed by the people inside you know so I think it's really it's really great what you're doing and I admire you for sticking with it it's nine months in you know it's it's going to go on for a long time and I don't like hold it against people who've already given up because they couldn't cope or whatever. It's disappointing, but not everyone is equipped to deal with it. But having a group and so some can step in when you need to step back and, you know, having, you know, which is what Sister Sister seems like it has a really great support network so that if you need to step back because you've got a study or you've got like some family issues, then one of the others can step up and, and lead their thing. So I think that's the key to having a, a good a good group around you. As a person from my country to see people abroad taking this much care and effort and kindness it means the world like that's my vitamin (laughs) i would love to say a little bit more about our amazing sisters if possible because i'm so thankful for them every single day when i'm getting so overwhelmed with school they can say take your time do what you have to do and help out when you can and uh, similarly, right, that's why I make up for it by going to different conferences and representing while someone else 
can take a step back. It's just so supportive. And every time someone says in our group chat, you know, like, listen, something really important came up with our family and their safety, and I'm having to deal with those issues, I might not be able to do this project. And they would say, it's fine. Take care. We care about you. We want you to be able to, you know, go through it without any guilt and without any, like, you know, regret that you cannot help this part or that part. It's just such a very powerful, empowering environment that we have with the sisters. I'm so thankful for it every day. Sometimes we do individual check-ins of each other as well. It's really, really empowering to be with my fellow teammates and sisters to sisters, is what I would say. I've done a lot of nonprofit work as well, working with Asylum Connect. It's a resource that is for people fleeing persecution from gender identity and sexual orientation. And uh, they also have people from all over the world and they're supportive and whatnot. But I don't feel that sense of like friendship and care as much as I did with Sisters to Sisters, I would say. It's just so inspiring what all these women are doing every single day. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.